I would invite you now to bow with me once more, and let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the age-old story of Christmas, one that uh, we can recite by heart. We know about the shepherds, the wise men, the angels. We know about how uh, through all of these things, Lord, you brought your son into the world. And yet, Father, there is so much truth that we have yet to fully grasp, not in understanding with our heads, but with our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would bless your word to that end, that the wonder of the hope that you have given us through Jesus would again captivate our hearts, and that we would leave here this morning with hope because of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you'll have noticed the sermon title this morning for Advent. Our first Advent is Hoping in the Dark. And I promise you, I didn't know that the power was going to be going out yesterday. But when it started going and I thought about my sermon title, I thought, how fitting that the Lord would provide a a real-life object lesson for us, Hoping in the Dark. Who here was hoping that the power would go back on last night? Right? So we know exactly what it is to be hoping in the dark. A perfect place for us to enter our, our word this morning. We're going to be looking at what it is to hope in the dark. An interesting item appeared in a Nashville newspaper some years ago. A woman named Hope pulled a man from Chili Harbor Waters after watching him drive his car off the bank in an apparent suicide attempt. Hope Phillips, 38 years of age, said Monday she was sitting in her car with her husband and son Sunday afternoon when she saw the man drive down Riverside Drive and launch full out into Wolf River Harbor. Phillips then saw the man frantically climb out of the car on top of the roof as it sank into the icy waters. She said the look on his face was like, I'm so desperate, please help me. All I could do was run out into the water. Phillips then swam towards the man who was about 25 feet off the bank and she used a tree branch to pull him towards the bank. Her husband helped drag him out of the water. And there the nearly drowned young man said he was a university student. Philip said, he kept telling us he was worthless, not worth saving, not worth anything. And so I said to him, you are worth something. You're here, aren't you? Then he asked my name. Hope, I said. Then he asked my name again as if he hadn't heard me. And I replied, hope, a little louder. Then he got this really funny look on his face, and he asked me my name for a third time. And this time I practically shouted it out, hope! And then finally he smiled. He began to laugh and said, I'd lost all hope, but I guess hope found me. Have you ever lost hope? Have you ever lost all hope? Have you ever felt like something was hopeless. Maybe some of you can identify with the man in the story. Have you ever felt that you weren't worth anything, as though your life held no value? Has it ever felt like things were just bad and only felt like they kept getting worse? Has it ever seemed that to keep going forward in this situation just feels futile and, and purposeless? Well, whether or not you have experienced those feelings of hopelessness, to whatever degree, one thing is certain, is that all around us right now in this world are people right now who do feel hopeless about life and the future. 
And maybe some of you can identify with this in some small way this morning. Maybe a circumstance feels hopeless to you that there's no resolution, no way forward. Well, this is nothing new. Feelings of hopelessness and despair have been around since the fall in the garden. In fact, some 720 years before the birth of Christ, so we are going back now over 2,700 years into the past, 2,700 plus years ago, the exact setting of our scripture reading from Isaiah chapter 9 was written in a time of hopelessness for the people of Israel. Now, if you take your Bibles and we look again at that familiar passage, a prophetic passage about the coming Messiah, Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 1 to 2. Let me read the first two verses for you once more. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now I want you, as we hear this passage again, to take note of the key descriptors of Israel's condition. They are negative. They are gloom, distress, humbled, and living in darkness. That was their current condition when this prophecy was spoken. Gloom, distress, being humbled, and living in darkness. And this described Israel's condition on, a numerous, on numerous levels. It described their condition spiritually, it described their condition personally, and it described their position politically. Spiritually, they had turned to idolatry. They were worshipping false gods and had turned away from the one true God of heaven. Personally, no one was individually willing to take responsibility for their sin and repent on their own behalf and on behalf of the nation. And finally, politically, because as a result of their idolatry, as a result of their unwillingness to repent of it, God had allowed the Assyrian army to invade and defeat Israel as a warning for them to repent and return to him before more judgment would take place. And so naturally, in this setting, having just been invaded by the Assyrians, having been overrun, basically being under the Assyrians' domination and living in fear of being attacked once more, everything is is looking gloomy, everything is dark, everything is negative. And so in this setting, naturally, the people of Israel are afraid for the future. They had lost all hope, and yes, they needed hope to find them. So in that gloomy, distressing, and dark condition, how would Israel respond to the word of the Lord? Well, how do we respond when we're in gloomy and dark situations? What do we do? Well, the fact is that most of us don't like sitting around in the dark, as we noticed again last night. We don't like sitting in the dark, let alone living in the dark. But in fact, some people physically have to live in the dark. In the little mining town of Longyearbyen, in the extreme north of Norway, Longyearbyen, the residents of that small mining town must physically live in near perpetual darkness for three months of the year without a glimpse of the sun. The Guardian.com ran an article on that little town that claims to be the most northerly, continuously inhabited town in the world. 
in which one of the residents shared, quote, The darkness is very hard, says Mary Ann Dahl. She runs one of the town's three hotels. It feels good when the light starts to come back. The darkness can be very depressing. The longer you stay, the harder it gets. She thinks the long, dark winters are one reason why people don't stay on the island for as long as they used to. Young people used to come here for about five or ten years, but now they stay only for one. Over the last decade, four people Dahl knew personally in the community had committed suicide as well. It's something to do when this place is dark, she said. Another resident said, when it gets dark, people come together because they're scared of the darkness. Now, physically, as in this example, darkness, it wears on us. It, it wears on your mind. It wears on your psyche. We are wired for the light. We need it. We need the sun. We need vitamin D. We need it psychologically and physically. And when it's dark, it wears on us like a heavy blanket. And so as troubling and confusing as physical darkness can be, and even frightening, because at most point of their lives, children are afraid of the dark in some way, shape, or form, my boys need a nightlight, and so when the power went out last night, that was a big deal. <laughs> we don't like the dark. We're scared of the dark. But how much more is spiritual, personal, and political darkness scary? Well, I believe that a strong argument can be made that we here in Canada, in our nation, we're moving steadily and steadily closer to the conditions of Israel in the day of Isaiah's prophecy. Spiritually, we are continually, continually rejecting the one true God. Not for the gods of Baal or Asherah necessarily, but we are rejecting the one true God for gods of our own making, namely ourselves. We've, we've put ourselves as, as man, as, as, hum, as humankind in the place of God, and we've elevated whatever we feel to be true. That is the highest truth. We've done this spiritually, rejecting God. Personally, no one seems to want to take responsibility for their own actions or accept consequences anymore, let alone repent of them and turn to God for forgiveness. And then politically, we see how leaders and courts continue to make decisions that go against God and his word in favor of things that the Bible clearly calls sinful. So just as ancient Israel desperately needed a word of hope, I believe Canada today needs a word of hope. Well, here it is once more, because incredibly, the same word of hope for ancient Israel is also for us today. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. Years before this prophecy, shortly after the, king, the death of King Solomon, ten of the tribes of Israel rebelled against their king at that time and they split off to form the new nation that was called Israel, the kingdom of Israel in the north, while the remaining two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south became known as the kingdom of Judah. And there was this period where Israel was two divided kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. Now, of the 12 tribes of Israel, you probably have heard of the ones of, of Judah and Benjamin, 
uh, Dan, tribes like that, Levi, the ones that everyone knows of. Who here would, would have remembered the tribes of, Vet, of Zebulun and Naphtali? Anyone? Even remember that those are two of the tribes of Israel? Okay, my mom, she remembers. She's got the 12 memorized. I didn't see many other hands go up. And the reason for that is obvious. They are two of the least known of all of the tribes of Israel. Insignificant tribes. No one cared about those two tribes. They are rarely mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament, in fact. They were never spoken of as as contributing in any important way to the nation or having any important roles. And yet here they are. God mentions them in Isaiah chapter 9, specifically these two insignificant tribes by name. Why? Well, let's think about where Jesus lived for a minute. Of course, we all know where Jesus was born, right? That's every, every Sunday school child knows Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But that's not where he grew up. He grew up at Mary and Joseph's hometown of Nazareth, and that's where he was raised. And Nazareth is in the region of Galilee, which is also mentioned in this prophecy. Now, guess which tribes inhabited the land of Galilee? That's right, Zebulun and Naphtali. Those two tribes were given this region of Galilee, and these two tribes settled in that region, primarily around the northern area of the Sea of Galilee. And so here, the prophecy comes home with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew tells us in chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, that early on in his ministry, Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth And he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so here, Matthew highlights the fact that 700 years after those words were spoken by Isaiah, Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy by bringing the light of his presence, his life, his ministry to the people who lived in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, in the days of Jesus, the Galilee was considered a very dark, backwards place. It was considered sort of the rednecks of Israel, if you will. It was a backwater region where only the poor, the uneducated, the simple lived. It was considered an unenlightened area, a dark place. In fact, when Peter and John spoke before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, the leaders there were amazed because these men, they said, were obviously Galileans. And they took note that they were unschooled, ordinary uneducated, simple men, and yet they spoke with such courage and conviction because they noticed they had been with Jesus. And yet Galilee's reputation was such that when Philip told Nathanael that he had found the Messiah, Nathanael exclaimed, hearing that he was from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But Jesus lived in this obscure part of Israel for a reason and for a purpose. He lived there, he was was raised there so that he could drive home the fact that his life was meant to shine a very powerful and hope-filled light in a very dark world and in the darkest corners of it. 
During his ministry, Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 46, I have come into this world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, my friends, what this means is that because Jesus has come, we don't have to grope along in the, in the gloom and darkness of sin and despair and hopelessness one minute longer. And it also means that Jesus didn't just come for the important people of the important places of the world. Jesus didn't just come for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He came for the backwater people of Zebulun and Naphtali. And you know what? When we look around our nation and our world today, Jesus didn't just come for the important people in Winnipeg or in Ottawa or, or in the big, great metropolitan cities. He came for the people of Cartwright and Lena and Homefield and Ninga, Belmont, Dunray, Ninette, even Wakapaw is included. And yes, Killarney too. Jesus came for us, all of us, and he came for you. No matter where you're from, no matter how insignificant you feel about, about yourself or, or how insignificant your life seems that you're not worth anything, Jesus came for you. He came for the uneducated and the simple as much as he came for the intelligent and the rich. He came for everyone. And where he was raised, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, highlights that for us. So my friends, let me ask you, right now today, spiritually, are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light of Jesus, or are you groping along in the dark? Now, some of you might instantly think in response, well, I'm a Christian. I'm here in church on Sunday morning, so of course, of course I'm walking in the light. But I want you to just hold on just one second. Because ancient Israel thought the exact same thing. Ancient Israel thought, hey, we are God's chosen people. We're the children of Abraham, living in the promised land. We have the law of Moses and the prophets. Of course we are in the light. But guess what God told them just a few verses later in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 13. But the people have not returned to him who struck them. Referring to the striking by the Assyrians. But the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed, in a single day. And so I ask for our consideration. Could it be that like Israel, we believe that we can see, We believe that we're in the light, but that in fact we are spiritually wandering in the darkness. In her book, Catherine Marshall tells the story of how the Lord called her husband into his service. She relates that one dark night, Peter, then a young man, decided he would take a shortcut across the Scottish moors. He knew there was a deep deserted limestone quarry in that area, but he was confident that he could avoid it. He knew the area well, even in the pitch black of night. And as he walked across the moors, suddenly he heard someone call out his name, Peter. And there was great urgency in the voice. And Peter stopped and responded, yes, who is it? What do you want? But there was no answer. And so he walked a few more steps to continue on his way, and he heard the voice call out once more, even louder, Peter. 
He paused and then stumbled and fell on his knees, shaken now. And putting his hand out to catch himself as he fell, he felt nothing but air. And his arms flailed there on the precipice, the very edge of the abandoned stone quarry, which was dozens and dozens of feet below to the rocks. Just one more step, he would have stepped out into thin air and certain death. The voice that called his name in the darkness saved his life. He never knew who called his name. He always believed it was the angel of the Lord. And he gave himself fully to the Lord's service from that day forward. And so too, wandering through life without the light of Jesus' presence to guide us is as equally dangerous as wandering across the Scottish moors in the pitch black with cliffs of an old quarry to wander into. Thankfully, like Peter, if we recognize God's voice calling our name, we too can stop. We too can repent. And we too can turn back to him before it's too late. For look again at what Jesus said. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now those two words, very important in what Jesus said, follows and walk. They are active words, not passive words. He who follows me will never walk in darkness. This is not a passive belief system, my friends. This is an active faith being lived out. You see, faith throughout the Bible is never merely a declaration of words given by the mouth, but actions taken with the feet that matter to Jesus. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, this strong warning is given. Listen to this. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So here he's saying, talk the talk, but then walk the walk. Anything less than that is a lie, and we are only deceiving ourselves. Lip service to the Lord is no service at all. To be in the light is to actively, daily follow Jesus and his words in such a way that it actually changes us. Not just a couple of words we say, yes, I believe Jesus is Lord. No, it changes our thinking. It changes our attitudes. It changes our speech. It changes our priorities. It changes our actions. It, it touches every single aspect of our lives and how we live them. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 continues. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So my friends, are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light? Not confessing the light, are you walking in the light, really and truly? Or is there sin that you need to repent of? Is there darkness that you've been harboring? Have gloom and hopelessness and fear, fear of the future, fear of the unknown, has it settled deep down in your heart? Listen again to Isaiah. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And so my friends, the good news today is that Whatever your current spiritual condition, whatever you've been professing, 
Jesus wants to shine his light on you. And just as surely as the sun at dawn dispels the darkness of night, when the light of Jesus dawns in our lives, he promises that he will do the same for you and I. And in this, we return once more to Longyearbyen, Norway. We're following three months of near perpetual darkness. Day by day in late January and February, suddenly the sky starts to glow once more on the horizon. And today the people will bask in the first full day of sun since October. And when that happens, spring's light starts to trumpet itself around the island, coloring the mountains pink, the sea, the sea deep azure, and the sky rose green and yellow. And from the hills, it looks like a watercolor come to life. The deep darkness of the three long months only makes that long-awaited dawn and that light the more breathtakingly beautiful. My friends, it's the same for us. The darker the night, the brighter the light. And though you may at times have lost hope, or maybe are in it right now, hope is still looking for you. Hope is looking for you, shining its light on you even now, and his name is Jesus. He is the hope of the world. And you know what? He's the only hope we've got. Because without Jesus, what hope is there? But with Jesus, we not only have hope for today, we have hope for eternity, and we have hope for whatever circumstances life throws our way. So turn to Jesus, not just in word, but turn your feet, your heart, towards Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Follow him every day. And the light of Jesus will shine on your life in such a way that he says you will never have to take another step in darkness or gloom ever again. And in response to this sort of thing, the Apostle Paul, with his heart filled up with joy of the Lord and with this hope, says in Romans 5, verses 1 to 2 and verse 5, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And so we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So my friends, are you boasting in the hope of the glory of God today? Has the love of Christ been poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit? If it has, you have a hope that triumphs over the darkest of circumstances that we never need to take another step in the dark ever again because of Jesus, the great light who was given to us. Amen. Lord Jesus, as we hold up you, the hope of the world, your light, may it shine from us in such a way that others would see it, that we would so reflect your glory and your light burning within us by your Holy Spirit that others would know we have a hope that overcomes even the darkest of circumstances. And so, Lord, may we shine in this world in such a way that others would see that hope which is in us and ask the reason for it, and we would be ready to respond. And, Lord, this morning I pray for anyone who has resonated in any way with that feeling of hopelessness, recognizing that in some way, Lord, that they are without hope, 
That perhaps spiritually, Lord, they have been professing you with their mouth, but have not been walking with you. Have not been following you actively with their feet, with their lives, with their actions. Thank you, Lord, that right now in this moment, any heart that truly repents, you will receive. You will offer full pardon and forgiveness. You have said, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord, that this is freely available right now in this moment. And so I just pray, give the grace that right now, if anyone needs to make things right with you to enter into your glorious light once more, I pray, Lord, that you would give the grace to do that even now. Father, bless each one who's here today. And as we continue in this Christmas Advent season, may we continue to point to you the hope of the world, the light of all men, For without you, there is no hope. But with you, we have more hope than we possibly know what to do with. Because this hope grows in our hearts day by day. And one day, it will burn brightly in glory with you forever. And so fill us with this hope, I pray, and your church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.